Thank you, God, that uh, as we sing, we get to connect with you in a different way. We know you hear and are uh, delighted at uh, what praise we can muster up. You're worthy of all of our praise. Uh, we ask that you would help us uh, now as we open your word together in a few minutes to be uh, continually attentive to you, to your spirit among us, to the things that you would have us know and learn and become. Uh, I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way, shape, or form, may they be quickly and forever forgotten. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, the Major League Baseball season has begun. Some of you are excited to see the Giants out on the field. One of you is excited to see the Dodgers out on the field. And in recognition of that, I'm going to... Calm down. I'm going to start in left field this evening and hopefully eventually bring it home. One of you recommended to me a couple of years ago a book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. Its first, its first chapter is titled Taking Radical Responsibility. Interesting. And it opens with this statement or this recommended pledge. I commit to taking full responsibility for the circumstances of my life and for my physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. The authors go on to write, the opposite of blaming is taking responsibility. The opposite of blaming is taking responsibility. And so the opposite of taking responsibility is blaming. And blaming is something that we do a lot of. Blaming, avoiding, denying is almost second nature for we human beings, for us. We don't take appropriate responsibility often for our actions, for our words, for our thoughts, our temperaments, but instead we blame others, we blame the world, we blame whoever and whatever, or we live in denial, or its cousin we avoid. But the first principle of good conscious leadership, as the book said, and really of well-being, of being whole and well and mature, is taking appropriate responsibility. Out in left field for now. And so another book, a different friend of mine uh, highly recommended to me, uh, a book about men and about being a man. And chapter one of this book is titled, Masculinity is About Taking Responsibility. I thought, oh, there's a theme here. Of course, the author doesn't mean, and the author wouldn't say that femininity does not involve taking responsibility, that femininity, femininity is not concerned with responsibility. He does not say that at all, so I don't want us to get sidetracked on that aspect of it. The book just happens to be about men and what it means to be a man. And so the author writes, masculinity is about taking responsibility. We naturally respect men who take responsibility for themselves. We have even more respect for those men who go beyond themselves to their families and their responsibility, and we have immense respect for men who take responsibility for those well outside of their family and their homes. He writes, men are masculine not to the extent that we bodybuild or fix stuff, but to the extent that we are faithful to the job of being humble, consistent, dedicated keepers of the garden. And you may know that phrase. And just as Adam's failure was devastating, our failures as men to fill this role have been equally devastating. And they often continue to be devastating. But let's consider Adam for a moment. In chapter two of Genesis, we read these words. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable, suitable helper for him. And interestingly, the Hebrew word here translated as helper does not mean a weaker partner or second fiddle or a second in command or one who's inferior in any way. In fact, the Hebrew word translated here as helper is in other places in the Old Testament used of God or used as a reference to, in reference to God. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And now verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs or part of the man's side. Hebrew is a little bit vague. And then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib or the side that he had taken out of the man. And now on to chapter three of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden, from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the fruit, from the tree, fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So the man was with the woman, but he took no action. He said nothing. He just focusing on men for a moment. He remained silent. He stayed on the sidelines. He avoided getting involved. He took no responsibility, either for himself or for the woman. Verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? The man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And with those, man, this, with those words, the man not only throws the woman under the bus and blames her, but he also effectively blames God. It's your fault, Lord God. You put her with me. It's an astounding statement and a truly disturbing example right there at the beginning of all things of someone not taking appropriate responsibility. Our human tendency is to not take responsibility, to avoid, deny, blame, hide, cower, and so on. Some people were paying a lot of attention to basketball 
uh, over the last few weeks, and especially last weekend, the NCAA uh, men's tournament, and to some degree, the women's tournament as well. And when you watch a lot of basketball, this is what you see regularly. The, one of the referees uh, blows his whistle for a foul or to stop play, and immediately uh, several of the players will go, whoa, wasn't me. Wasn't me. I didn't touch him. I didn't do that. I didn't knock him down. Wasn't me. Wasn't me, right? That's what happens. That's normal human behavior. I didn't do it. I didn't touch him. I'm innocent. That was nothing. I referee soccer from time to time, see the same thing all the time, blow the whistle for a foul. What? What are you talking about? I didn't touch him. We weren't even close. There was no contact. I didn't foul him. He fouled me. And then all of a sudden, parents that are 100 yards away, all of a sudden think that they're the most impartial people. And what are you talking about? That wasn't a foul. He couldn't have fouled. My kid was fouled. Our tendency is to deny and to overlook and to ignore our own wrongdoings and sometimes those of our children or those who are close to us or those who are connected with. Our ability to ignore our own stuff is remarkable and our ability to see and take notes of the faults and the shortcomings of others is also remarkable, truly. You remember Peter after Jesus' resurrection in the last chapter of John's gospel, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? He says it three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Each time afterwards, uh, Peter responds, yes, Jesus, you know I love you. You know I love you. And each time after that, Jesus says some version of, well, then feed my sheep. And then Jesus spoke to Peter the first words he had spoken to Peter along the shores of the Sea of Galilee three years earlier, Peter, follow me. You, follow me follow me. And then John writes, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Scholars uh, think this was actually John himself, a, a sort of uh, indirect reference to himself. When Peter saw him, John, he asked Jesus, Lord, what about him? Lord, what about him? What are you going to say to him? Why don't you tell him to do something difficult? What about his stuff? What about him not feeding his sheep? And we've all seen and heard Christians in the church, sometimes ourselves being zealously concerned about the sins or the shortcomings of other people pointing to their transgressions, throwing stones, condemning people we don't even know, much less people that we've loved. What about them? And one must wonder how often Jesus' words in his Sermon on the Mount about not judging others harshly and about first removing the plank in one's own eye before seeking to help someone remove a splinter from their own eye came back to Peter. How often did those words sort of ring or not ring in Peter's mind? I wonder if Jesus' crystal clear words sometimes rang in Peter's ears and sometimes like this time maybe didn't, just like happens with me. Occasionally they ring and often they don't. Sometimes I pick up stones. Okay, so now finally to our scripture, now finally to Matthew. Angela got us started at chapter 26, the first 11 or so verses. We've spent so much time in Matthew over the last seven months. I thought we'd continue uh, this evening. The chief priests and elders upped uh, their plotting against Jesus, and then Jesus is anointed by a woman with an alabaster bar, uh, jar of expensive perfume, which was both this actual act, but also this rich symbolic act and foreshadowing of Jesus anointing his inauguration of sorts, rich with symbolism. Verse 14, 
It's the evening of Jesus' arrest, the evening before Jesus' crucifixion. Listen closely, this is the word of God again. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him, Jesus, over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Jesus replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them and prepared for the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad. And they began to say to one another, Surely you don't mean me. Surely he's not referring to me. He's not talking about me. He's not talking about me. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it's written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Pretty stern warning. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, rabbi, not me, Right? Jesus answered, you have said so. Again, a little vague. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink it all, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many, for many, for the sins of many. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, this very night, you will all, all fall away on account of me. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, chimes in, speaks up, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered Peter this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all of the other disciples are around and they said the same. Then they go to the garden, Gethsemane. Jesus prays, he invites them to pray. They fall asleep, he prays again. He wakes them up, they fall asleep. He prays, they fall asleep, prays. Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived, trickles in late. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people, the Jewish religious establishment. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Friend. Then the men stepped forward, they arrest Jesus, Cutting off of the ear, Jesus puts the ear back. They arrest Jesus, they take him away. Verse 57. 
Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled late at night. But Peter followed him at a distance, a safe distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. And then there's that sort of trial and false witnesses and false accusations. And they sort of conclude that Jesus is guilty and worthy of being delivered to the Romans. Verse 67, then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Verse 69, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But Peter denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. Swear on it. And a little while later, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent, your Galilean accent gives you away, bro. Then Peter began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. It's the end of chapter 26. Verse, uh, chapter 27 begins like this. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the Roman governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. Peter weeps bitterly. Now Judas is filled with remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that is your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Judas may have been disappointed in Jesus. Jesus apparently wasn't going to lead a revolt against the Roman government, the occupying Roman establishment. He didn't intend to overthrow the Romans, but instead inaugurate God's kingdom in some new, fresh, powerful way. And so Jesus turned, Judas turned on Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which he probably still had in his pockets, Right? when he was having dinner in the upper room with Jesus. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. His disciples were very sad and began to say to him one after another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Then Judas, the one who would betray him said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi while he's got 30 pieces of silver in his pocket. The capacity of human beings to not tell the truth, to not live in the truth, to not acknowledge reality and truth is overwhelming and remarkable. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Live truthfully, openly, and in reality. 
not me, I would never do that. I'm not that kind of person. I could never do that. That's not me. I've got more integrity than that. I've got more responsibility and loyalty than that. Who, me, no way. I don't know if you've ever had those words go through your mind or heart. And then there was Peter. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will fall, all fall away on account of me. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Maybe the others, not me, Peter. I am such an upstanding individual and have such tremendous moral fiber. Such upright character. I would never do anything like that. So heinous, so gutless, so shameful, so weak. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declares, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. I will never disown you. All the other disciples said the same. And yet Peter denies Jesus just as Judas had betrayed Jesus and just as all, Matthew slips in there a couple of times, all of the other disciples would do, all of them then. And we really can't think the church is a whole lot different than the original Big 12, right? Or certainly not any better. I would never do that. I will never do that. But they did, every one of them, as has every one of us, and as will every one of us in some way, shape, or form. Is it true? And so the responsible thing to do now and the appropriate thing and probably the honest thing is to confess our sins of the past. And we may as well confess our sins of the future as well also at the same time. Not because we're planning to sin or because we are excusing or being okay with or paving the way for such in the future, not at all, but simply acknowledging that the road to perfection for us is really long and we're nowhere close at this point or in the immediate future. So hopefully in and by God's grace, we are continually being healed and transformed and sanctified. And part of growing up for men and for women is taking responsibility for our actions, past, present, and even into the future. There's a word for men and women who don't grow up, who don't take responsibility. It's called a child, right? But we can take some responsibility for our actions and our behaviors and our hearts by coming clean, by confessing our sin and our transgressions, by throwing ourselves on the love of God in Jesus, the grace and mercy of God in Jesus, which we can do because, because Jesus knew. Jesus knew that Judas had already conspired with the authorities to hand Jesus over when Jesus invited Judas to the table to share in the Passover and Jesus' last meal, Jesus knew, and yet Jesus still invited Judas, which is really remarkable when we look at the timeline. And later Jesus calls him friend after all that. Likewise, Jesus knew that Peter, the disciple and friend whom, to whom he was closest, would deny him, would disown him. Jesus knew, and yet he still invited Peter to Passover, to the table, to fellowship, to communion. And so on Holy Thursday, in the midst of all the high drama of Passover and in John's telling of the evening, washing Jesus, washing his disciples' feet and everything else, we are invited also still to, in many ways, the same table 
where we are reminded of two, great, of two things. First, our great sin, of our betraying God consciously and unconsciously, intentionally and unintentionally, occasionally and always, of our sometimes really meager attempts at faithfulness and the ease with which we sometimes capitulate to temptation. So first, we're reminded of our great sin and our betraying and our denying. But we're also simultaneously reminded of God's great love for us in Jesus, that he would willingly give his life even for those who would betray him, even for those who would disown him. Do you know that kind of love? The love of which we sang, Stephen led us in. Oh, the deep, 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 deep love of Jesus that's unlike and different than every other sort of love we've ever experienced or encountered. Do you know that deep? Do you know that you are loved? Do you know that we are loved profoundly, eternally, as we are? And not as we should be, because we'll never be as we should be, but as we are, as we present ourselves today. Jesus knows everything about us, and yet he invites us to his table, to his feast and into his kingdom. Thanks be to God.